The situation now is even worse. Flood is not about the poverty line. Hey everyone, it's really good to have everyone here um, for another Floodcast. Um, we're really excited. We've got a really great guest, um, Alec, Alec Wilmot, who's um, a journo who spent some time in Myanmar. Um, and we're talking about Myanmar this week. Um, we decided to get into it because I'm not sure if keen listeners remember that we got a little bit into GetUp um, and the role that um, GetUp, like one of the GetUp guys, David Madden, has started in a, like an, uh, an accelerator, a business entrepreneur accelerator in Myanmar, which is funded heaps by um, the US State Department, but also by the eBay founder, who's like a libertarian capitalist with an axe to grind. And I imagine money to be made in Myanmar. So we kind of wanted to figure out what's happening in the, like in, in capitalism over there. Um, but I should let everyone introduce themselves before I jump into it. But yeah, I'm Declan. Uh, hi, I'm Matt. And I just wanted to add that the Myanmar Accelerator is funded by the Spider Network. And I think that's important to understand. That's what it's called. And yeah, I'm Callum. And just before this cast as well, I was re-going back down that rabbit hole um, of going through, because I saw the We The Future Foundation funded by the Skull Foundation and all ties back to eBay, baby. Hi guys, and I'm Alec. Thank you for having me on today. No, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, so you spent some time in Myanmar, is that right? When did you go? Like, how did that happen? Oh, I was... Uh... Um, in Melbourne in 2015 at RMIT doing film and one of the things that they were very clear about when I was there and immediately and towards the end when we were looking at going out into the industry is that it's a difficult industry to get on with anyway I had a friend who'd gone to Myanmar sight unseen just because he wanted an adventure and I was talking to him and saying that it's difficult to find jobs but I really enjoy writing and he was like I know a newspaper specifically the Myanmar state newspaper the Global New Light of Myanmar, is looking for editors. You should just send this guy an email. And I did, and I did some editing for them, and they invited me, and I went. That's, That's wild. Well, like, like, all I remember about, about Myanmar is, is like, like, as a as child, just being told, told it's, like, like completely locked, locked down, down and you can't, can't go. go. So, so, I mean, I, I, mean, guess, I guess that, that wasn't really the case. case. Yeah, that's right. After 2011. So, yeah, sorry, a bit of the modern history. In 2008, there was a Saffron Revolution. Um, against the military, which was really widespread. So they decided they were going to do their experiment in democracy. The military wrote, it, important to remember, the military wrote their own constitution and the way that they were going to do democracy. After 2011, they opened up the country um, to foreigners. Because you're right, before that, you basically couldn't go there. And if you did, then, you know, you're being f tailed around by, uh, by their version of the KGB, which is like special branch. Uh, so yeah, I got there in 2015. It was fully open then. It was still, it was under like a transitionary military government, um, under tense way. So yeah, I got there in October 2015, just before the election, when Aung San Suu Kyi won. Yeah, for sure. I was there three and a half years. Um, so that included Aung San Suu Kyi's election. Which was amazing. It was that was an incredible day uh, to be in Myanmar. Like people were just so incredibly excited to be having their elections. She was a national hero to everyone. They knew it was going to be um, 
They knew it was going to be a victory. The military party had very little chance of coming out of that with a good result. Um, and yeah, in between that and then things really hinged on about a year later when the genocide uh, happened. Um, completely changed the mood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, genocides have a way of doing that. And for and just for context, um, uh, how do you pronounce it? Ansung. Uh, Ong San Suu Kyi. Yeah. So, and for context, she was um, a big uh, liberal sort of progressive leader who had been arrested after the um, there was those uprisings that I don't know how to, how they say it, but it's like the four eights. That was in the late eighties, wasn't it? Yeah, nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, and she's been under house arrest since then until she those elections you were just talking about. That's right. Um, I th- if I remember correctly, they had a general election in ninety one, and the NLD did. She actually ran and they participated, but it was not on the level. And I'm pretty sure there's a story that the military tried to uh, assassinate her in a motorcade at some point. Um, but you're right. And the other important thing about Aung San Suu Kyi is that she's the daughter of the national founder General Aung San. Who's like their World War Two hero? Yeah, yeah. When I was trying to do my research for this, all I I listened to um some of the Radio Warner episodes, and I was I I was stunned to realize that she had a her father was like this national hero and a communist who was you know potentially killed and and all this sort of you know skullduggery like back in yeah I've seen before some leftists suggest that the British government had a hand in assassinating him, and I looked into it. It doesn't make a lot of sense geopolitically. Like, I don't see why they would do that just as Myanmar was becoming independent. But what is true is that the, the assassins bought a bunch of Tommy guns that had belonged to, like, British officers who were in Rangoon and leaving. Um, so they were British weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen... Um, it's not like the left to, um, to have, you know, fantasies of assassination, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I've seen, like, a, th- a few people kind of talking about, like well, was it, was it the British or was it just like other elements within his party that were, you know, more capitalist or, you know, it, it, it's kind of impossible to know. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yeah. And after that, the military weren't very interested in like investigating that either. Yeah. Well, should we go like even a little bit to the start and talk about um, like the colonization of, of, well, what was then Burma, I guess? Like, because it was... Was it part of the Indian protectorate or like the Indian kind of area or was it was it a separate kind of province or separate like colony, I guess? Um, so it was incorporated into the Raj. So they've got the first Burmese war and the British invaded from the Raj um, and brought they used a British Indian army to do it. And they captured the lower half of the country and pushed the kingdom north in the 1850s. And the second Burmese war was, I think, in the mid to late 1880s. And they took over the rest of the country and ended the kingdom. And then it was part of the Raj and it was operated as like just an extension of India until I think 1937 when the nationalist movement that uh, Aung San was part of uh, leading in the 30s where he got his like political experience. Uh, Don't quote me. I'm pretty sure that the nationalist movement of Myanmar just caused him eventually to redraw the border between and made it a separate entity oh shit so was it like kind of like before british imperialism were was it like one kind of like pretty coherent like national place that's now like now post 
you know, post-independence kind of reformed itself in more or less the same shape as it was? Or is it a lot like a lot of these, like, ex-African colonies where they've just, like, drawn lines on a map that have incorporated all sorts of, you know, different, like, ethnic and religious groups that don't really have much to do with each other and don't necessarily get along as well? Oh, okay. So uh, this is a good way of looking at the military ideology and why what makes Myanmar so unique, part of it, is that the post-war kind of military what they called their socialist doctrine or the Burmese road to socialism it doesn't resemble socialism very much um, except for state ownership of the means which they had aside from that uh, there are many reasons you could say that it didn't have any socialists like real ideological founding um, but what makes it so strange is that basically they had this pastoral vision of trying to correct for colonialism and trying to remove it um, so this, they have this like very idealistic and very, they have like a sense of plastic nationalism. So yeah, they wanted to return it to its feudal order and its feudal base that they had before colonialism because it was stable and had been stable for relatively stable with changing kings and like warring minor lords and so on. But it had been theirs uh, for centuries. And they were deeply, the Burmese felt deeply humiliated by being colonized. And I would also note that there is a specific, I think there is a specific prejudice for South Asia and South Asian people with Myanmar people. And one of them is that the military has always promoted the idea of clash of civilizations and that they're afraid of, I think, like even the population sizes. Um, but part of it is also the fact that the colonization had originated from India and with the Raj and the introduction of capitalism to their completely feudal order. They had very, uh, there was really nothing... As far as I know, there wasn't even like a, a proto-capitalist mercantile class that existed in Myanmar at that time. It really, when the British came in, they just revolutionized the entire world for uh, the Myanmar people. And the landlords and the bankers and so on, many of them were Indian. Um, so to an extent, like the prejudice you see today, the prejudice against the Rohingya, like also harks back to their feelings about colonialism. Um, and specifically with the Rohingya, that's also uh, this code, this code of like ethnic belonging, which the military invented their ideology. There's 135 national races, which are codified and recognized by the government. They have their own costumes. They have like their assigned cultural place in the hierarchy. Um, all will believe the Bama, of course, who were always like made up most of the, the royal core. Um, and the Rohingya part of the reason that it was always so like uh, stressful and difficult for them to get by is because their dual nationality and their dual cultural identity as being part of uh, Western Myanmar and part of Northern Rakhine um, have a long history there but they also have a history that goes along with Bangladesh and their culture is something in between and it's just like in Myanmar today that ruling ideology it's a dichotomy and like the existence of the Rohingya actually threatens the coherence of how they see themselves as a nation. Um, but sorry, this is a long answer. But yeah, basically everything that's happening politically today is all about the point of colonization and trying to mold a, like recreate and go back to this original model that they think like represented the glory of, uh, the glory of the of the past. So it's like a an almost like a decolonial ideology. They're actually like. There's this whole idea that we could simply like unscramble the egg and undo the 
process of British colonization actually completely reconstruct the original Burmese monarchy in this it all didn't like Pol Pot do a similar kind of thing it was like a the difference is one of the other differences is that all those men those leaders that came up with the generation the independence generation they'd all been educated by the British they had Western colonial education and they had a Western colonial perspective on themselves because the British had done all the anthropological work and they were intellectuals and they spoke English and like that's what was available to them. So the weird, the really weird twisted thing about it is that, and I've said this before, Myanmar went down this road where they thought that they were undoing colonization and being anti-colonist, but then they ended up colonizing themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. so like, so they had like an anthropological perspective on their own like colonial identity. So like, like what they were doing is maybe kind of instead of reverting to what a, a pre-capitalist society was actually like, kind of trying to reconstruct a, an almost noble savage idea of like a, um, like the, the sort of colonists had this idea of what pre-colonial life was supposed to be like based on these essentially colonial images of it. And yet they, and then like the junta came along and was like, yeah, no, that was all real. Yeah, um, like in that, uh, yeah, all of their learning, like just their, their, the tools of analysis, the intellectual tools they had and the cultural tools, the anthropology part of this project to bring back like the glorious, more natural order. And it also makes it quite fascistic, right? They have like a natural order in their minds, which they were trying to achieve, but you can't reverse history. You can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. And they were trying to bring about a world uh, which just it couldn't be um, they had too much had changed the world had changed so is there a, is there a point where that has that mindset did shift away from that from the military was that like did that change in the 1990s with the fall of um, the Soviet Union and and that sort of thing sure so um, yeah if you don't know the military took over in 1962 and closed the country, um, which meant that after 1962, they had decided that like international culture and Western culture and even the Cold War itself, they went third way. They didn't really want anything to do with either the international communist movement or the capitalist movement because they had their own idea. They were restoring their national pride. Um, they thought would not have, it wasn't required of e uh, either of those systems. Um, and they immediately crashed the economy. The economy crashed in like, if I remember the mid 60s, but by the 70s, it hit rock bottom and it stayed there uh, for about 30 years or more. And I think it started to get better in the 2000s when they introduced reforms. Um, and a lot of people, again, from the outside looking in, it's it can be strange to try to explain like why these things happen and what where's the logic. Um, but they're just that ideologically committed and the military always was. Uh, it's this like self-contained because the military itself they are like almost social pariahs because they are a colonial force and they do so much brutality to the ethnic um, periphery and the Burmese um, always hated them too because they're authoritarians and Burmese people barely had an easier time um, than the ethnic people did even though they were doing it 
ostensibly to rise, to bring Burmese people like back to their um, their natural place at the top of the order. They were never popular. The people have always hated them and felt completely alienated from their power. Um, so, yeah, until uh, there's the 88 uprising. Um, and then through the 90s, things got, a, I think things started to get a little bit better. In the 2000s, there was some economic growth. Then in 2008, the actual reason that they kicked off with the Saffron Revolution, it had been bubbling for a long time. But if I remember correctly, the military cut fuel subsidies for the public, which they had enjoyed for a long time. And it wasn't hugely economically impactful, but it was just one of those things. Like, sometimes you don't know what the straw that breaks the camel's back is going to be. It seems like it's always fuel subsidies for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I guess because, yeah, it's not hugely impactful. It's just so annoying. Yeah, I was going to note, note as well, it's just like there's another, you know, the the yellow vests is like, there seems to be some like sort of association with fuel subsidies and then um, colour revolutions. What, um, what caste is like the military drawn from? Like who are the social class that, that like firstly made them up when they, when they first kind of took power in the 60s, but then like, how did they perpetuate themselves? Like who, who were like the next generations kind of coming through? Was it like a specific ethnic group and like... And just the the aristocracy of that one. Sure. So the military has its own aristocracy, and they're all Burmese. Uh, but it's pretty twisted. Like as I said, like these, they have these tactics that they use to kind of keep all the balls in the air. Like they have, you know, to to manipulate their own forces and also be manipulating politics across the country. I um I met a woman. She was an older woman. And she was telling me about her family and how they'd served. And she was an ethnic minority. And she said that her son died um, fighting for the Tatmadaw. He'd been, I think, forcefully drafted. And he was an ethnic minority. I think he was Kian. Perhaps Kachin. Anyway, uh, when they brought them into the... They needed... Sorry, let me rephrase that. The military would go out to the ethnic areas and then bring a bunch of people into the military structure and then make them fight their own people. Because they had the benefit of they knew the landscape, they knew the language, but there was also like a serious psychological element to it. And the military, the Tatmadaw in Myanmar, is very interested in like psychological programs. It's how they've always kept like everything up in the air where they can control it. So like what kind of psychological programs do they run beyond that one? Um, in general, uh, Although there was a bunch, there was like, one of course, in a dictatorship, is getting people to spy on each other, to do your job for you. So there was a thing called the Head of the Hundred Households. And it was connected. So they have a special branch. That was the domestic police force. It was basically a secret political police. We'd go out and arrest people in the middle of the night. They would do that all the time. They follow journalists. They get photographed all the time. Um, following around journalists and they've been at all the protests. Uh, but well, the other thing they would do is they had the head of the hundred households, which is for every hundred households in a town or a village, there would be a person who would be a local community leader, but that local community leader would be chosen, like their political ability to hold that position was based on the fact that they kept their ear on the ground and you, they would be spying on the households they oversaw. Uh, and also you could go to them, you know, just creating distrust and creating networks of essentially like civilians spying on each other. Inside the military, 
maintaining discipline inside the Tatmador. Um, they use pretty brutal tactics. Like, there's video of this. There is, there's plenty of evidence. One of the, like, they're very brutal. Officers or anyone, like anyone with any power is encouraged to physically assault people below them. They do that a lot. They beat up their recruits when they bring them in. Like, brutality is an everyday experience of being in the military. But they also do things like, uh, they keep them very isolated from the community. So a lot of bases would be in the middle of nowhere. They're encouraged to have, like, a social and cultural attitude of being uh, isolated from everyone else. And there, there are other ways you do it. Like, uh, they, of course, they incorporate Buddhism into it. The military has a relationship um, they use uh, very esteemed monks and they will have ceremonies where people are like, the troops are told that, you know, they're doing, you know, they're doing the work uh, of protecting the country and protecting their religion. So yeah, at, at every level, there's always like, there's always some kind of like mind play going on. Although really like the first, one of the first times that, you know, Mamma really entered my like, my understanding at all was when when the massacres were starting and the ethnic cleansing and i remember being really surprised because uh, my mother's a buddhist so i've had quite a lot of like relationship with buddhism in my life and i was really kind of surprised that this religion that was really um well in my experience of it very uh like almost quite a secular religion quite a philosophical religion and so deeply committed to to non-violence was was capable of doing it how's how does that kind of work there like how how do they like manage to incorporate like Buddhism into a military apparatus so coherently? There's a couple of things to it, and I want to tread lightly because I don't know really enough. But I will say that in Myanmar, like in Sri Lanka, they practice Theravada Buddhism, which in Sanskrit literally means elder learning. Uh, it's considered to be a more conservative form of Buddhism, but it also um, one of its dictates. It's strongly impresses upon people that you should be listening to your elders like uh, uh, like um yeah that you should always be taking advice and always be seeking advice from older people that in general like runs through the culture uh wisdom is considered to be like very important and naturally wisdom are housed uh, with like older people so that's uh their form of buddhism is Theravada. um the other part of it is is that they, in that program I was talking about, which I don't think would be stretched to, to call it blood and soil nationalism, is what they have. It's very prescriptive. It's very, as I said, legally codified on the ethnic peoples and assigned land, their traditional lands. And this is all like uh, quite out in the open. Um, so we can think of it also as being that religion uh, Myanmar Buddhism is tied in with the blood and soil nationalism and it's under threat that's the other thing of course yeah and is that is that kind of like perception of threat something that is um, like like a lot of the way that like fascist kind of politics works where it like it, it kind of creates an imaginary threat you know it's not like there was a meaningful threat of Jewish takeover of Germany or anything or is it like is there a genuine kind of like encroachment onto this this kind of like buddhist buddhist like ethnic groups by like by other religions and ethnic groups as well 
Not really. It's pretty strong. Buddhism is by far um, the strongest religion. It's deeply ingrained in Burmese culture. But when you mention like that fascist aspect, they do that to uh, Islam, clearly to the Rohingya. But so what would happen is in Yangon, there are neighborhoods and we might call them, they're closer to ghettos uh, than most people live in, but big, strong Muslim neighborhoods that are South Asian. And the police would go there and raid houses because the public would report, or there were always rumors um, going about, that the Muslims who lived inside Myanmar were a fifth column and they were bringing Rohingya to come and live at their houses and hiding them with the idea that they were going to commit acts of terrorism or that they were basically infiltrating. Like it's a really like, it's a fascist trope um, that they would use all the time. Is this the stuff that's been happening in the last few years with the genocide that you're talking about there? Oh, sorry. So uh, there are two important um, Islamic groups that we would talk about in Myanmar. There's the Rohingya, who have always lived in the border area between Bangladesh and west of Myanmar. Uh, but there's also just like a general um, Islamic community that live uh, across the country, but mostly in Yangon, I think is where their largest community is. And, and are, are, are they, they, um, um, are they ethnically Rohingya as well? No, sorry, they're not. Uh some of them might be, actually, I don't know. But my understanding was always that they were South Asian. Uh, but the infiltration, yeah, it was always the charge that... People understood that um, the Islamic community, like in Yangon, wasn't itself Rohingya. But it was the, just the suspicion, you know, that because, uh, because of all that propagandizing that they're Muslims, they're second-class citizens to begin with. But what if they're also, you know, like trying to infiltrate our culture? Yeah, because I was the thing that when I sort of was thinking about Myanmar and looking at this podcast is that if you, you know quite a few years ago when I was watching the um, Ansung Suki you know get elected and everything like that I was like oh, I was thinking oh because you know I was doing international relations at uni I was like oh that's really cool like this is someone progressive getting in you can see a country opening up and then when the Rohingya stuff um, started happening and there was this like like the whole thing of the genocides happening and she was um, seen to not be opposing them and all in, in a way almost um, covering for them. And there was like, that was like a really big disconnect for me going through like a, you know, political learnings phase. And I was like, oh, that, that's sort of what takes for me. So yeah, I, I don't really know much about why someone who's like seen as big progressive leader has suddenly had this big flip or maybe it was always like that, but maybe you're not on the surface. No, 100%. Um, I'll admit, I haven't read one of Aung San Suu Kyi's books, but she's written quite a number of them, and they're very liberal-minded, uh, very, like, liberation-minded. And, you know, she uh, lived in the UK for a long time. She had very intellectual circles around Cambridge, I believe, because her husband, her husband, who would later um, pass away... Oh, I'm trying to remember what his job was, but he came from money and he had really, they both would like shift around in big uh, intellectual circles in England before she came back. Um, yeah. And she wrote a bunch of books about liberation. And when she came, uh, got into power, I suppose like what changed, I recently wrote a piece for the Greens e-magazine um, about the coup. And in it, I kind of outlined how what became apparent and was really confusing and very difficult to wrap my head around because Myanmar has such a unique and strange like political history is that 
she is a genuine Democrat, and she does have liberatory politics, but she's also an ethno-nationalist. She is invested in the same, like, ideological system that the military built. Uh, and she's invested as they are. It's really odd. Like, she does want democracy, but she also, like, is going to decide that uh, democracy is for real Myanmar people. And we learn that she also, like, when it comes down to it, believes that there are people who do not deserve democracy, because they shouldn't be there. Mm, I guess it maybe is, maybe she, and again, just sort of from my skim of the readings, it's almost like there was, um, like, that liberation did not come from a, again, similar to how the original coup in the 60s didn't come from a actual socialist um, uh ideology hers as well wasn't really like a, a true internationalist or even like uh it's it's more of an like an ethno um nationalist liberation up more along the line with like more capitalist liberal strains as opposed to more of a like socialist um universalist liberation could be that yeah and a, and, a, and a much bigger dose of ego than i think anyone expected <laughs> she definitely saw herself as being like that savior so can we talk a bit about, it seems like uh, there's this military junta that does all this like weird psychological warfare, but it, it seems like there's a very long history in Burma of resistance to that military junta, which like you talked about the uprising of uh, 88, there was the Finn elections, there was the Saffron revolution, and then there's this uh, recent whatever's happening now, which I don't know enough about, but every time I read about it, I'm like, oh, it seems like they're they're doing a lot like they're people are taking all of their money out of the financial system there's these big like strike waves and things yeah so like so can you tell us a little bit about over the years like maybe even looking back to 88 what people have done against the military and against the gender and like um what the burmese people have done to resist this and how that's gone and like what concessions they've been able to win um it's kind of basically is the difference that at the core um, in the heartland, like the Burma heartland, it was always like to a degree that there was really not much you could do. There was not very little organization. And as I said, one of those huge roadblocks um, was that the military has always been extremely good at creating sowing distrust and like as many authoritarian governments do, uh, keeping an eye on everyone and encouraging them to spy on each other. So, I mean... I think there were there were flashpoints uh, when this would rise to the surface, like one of those, yeah, being the student uprising in '88, and after that, uh, the military decided that intellectualism intellectualism was too dangerous, and they closed all of the universities. Like that's their response um, to things like that. Um, but it, yeah, one of one of the funnier like things that you find there is that people don't trust banks because I can't remember if it was Tan Shui. But one of the Myanmar dictators, uh, he had a soothsayer um, who told him that he, he had like a series of lucky numbers or something to this effect. And overnight, he changed the denominations of the currency. So he, he what little economy was left, like in the 70s and 80s, he crashed it overnight. Uh, and Myanmar people, I'm pretty sure there was discontent around that. Um, but it, it was never able to organize that well. But you do find people buy gold. There are jewelry stores everywhere across Yangon. And one of the reasons is that 
that replaced banking for a lot of people. Like they just wanted hard metals. Um, and it's, it was, and now it's changed, I think like over the last decade or so, but it was just like a funny little holdover. But yeah, unfortunately, like there is organizing on the periphery. There's always been the ethnic armed groups. They've been fighting some of them since the forties, uh, most of them since the sixties. And that kind of like brings in interesting politics, uh like one of the reasons it gets it's almost like you would uh in order to, to explain all these things you want to have a map of myanmar and then have like cellophane you know uh like cellophane um like slips that you could put over the tops so you could layer all this stuff because one of the other things that came out of the rohingya campaign is when the military they sent all that military power to northern rakhine it not only like kicked out all the Rohingya from the region, but it cut off uh, all the drug routes because Myanmar is a huge producer of like heroin, um, among other things. It cut off the drug routes for that a lot of the ethnic armed groups in the north and the east use to get drugs into India. So it was really like two birds with one stone. From what it looks like, um, a lot of the resistance has... And like you were saying, there's not a lot of organization, but the little that there is seems to revolve around, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to revolve around the National League for Democracy or the NLD, which is that the sort of part, the pro-democracy party. It, it, was, sort, it was involved in the 88, the Saffron and the current uh, sort of resistance revolutions. I mean, yes. What uh, the NLD leadership, it was one of like the dysfunctions of the party and the dysfunction of politics in Myanmar is that everyone in NLD leadership had a personal relationship to Aung San Suu Kyi and had worked for her during her house arrest or they themselves have been activists. Many of them had spent time in prison, um, but that's what had gotten them their positions. And like uh, many of them were poets and writers and artists. And unfortunately, they actually didn't have very much direct political experience. Um, but they did have the ear of Aung San Suu Kyi, which is very important to have. But it was very insular, uh, and communication was like, she played it very close to the chest. You wouldn't really know what the party was thinking until one of the people, one of the uh, uh, ministers would speak about policy, and you knew that it would have come pretty much directly from Aung San Suu Kyi, because he keeps her circle so tight. Okay, so in that case... I guess maybe if I'm just sort of looking at the main focus points of the res resistance being, a and again, not discounting any of the other stuff, but sort of looking at Myanmar history, the three big ones that I'm really interested in is the 88, the Saffron, and the current one. It, I know the 88 was a student protest that um, was defeated, but I, what sort of kicked that off? Like, do you know what sort of kicked it off in 88? It was a great Myanmar hero who had died and his body was being brought back to Myanmar and the military was going to accept control of the body and they were going to go about with the funeral arrangements and everything else. The students went to the airport, I believe, and stole the casket and took it away. And that was their protest, which then it kind of, I think, uh, as the military cracked down, it expanded into something bigger. But that was the inciting incident. And I met, I did meet um, at least one person who had been part of that. <clears throat> excuse me, they've been part of that initial uh, protest when they took the body. That's really interesting. What um, what happens with, like, what what's going on in the um, the economy there? Like, is is the military kind of 
funded by the drug trade in in some way or and also just like has the kind of like growth and opening up of the economy be like what way has that contributed to the the various kind of revolutions and like uprisings that have happened over the last you know 30 years now okay so there are two massive revenue streams the military (laughs) the military is publicly funded they get all the money they need from the public budget i think it's one of the highest in asia what holds their budget together um well actually it's a part of the whole thing what is often called the resources curse huge vast resources of many 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 different kinds um which makes them a great deal of money but yeah also um just like direct taxation which is all done on paper it's not computerized it's it's like (laughs) to the point and it's it it's so primed for like so yeah in terms of income uh i'm not a hundred percent i think a lot of it comes from like the industry that they have to do with resources but it's really funny at the local level like when you go out to dinner uh the tax that you pay basically the gst that you pay on your meal say the business has a roll of stickers for different denominations of currency and when they give you your receipt they put a tax sticker onto the receipt to signal that they've done what they need to for the tax but it's up to the business to buy new roles like madness (laughs) it's really mad um so yeah i think it's like only big ticket items that really like fund the budget i would have to look into it i don't uh please don't take my word for it i guess i was like wondering like what like what what work do people do like are most people subsistence farmers or is there like is there like manufacturing or is it mostly just like direct resource extraction yeah agriculture is huge outside of the cities um yeah massive agriculture unmechanized uh very basic agriculture but um still going nonetheless huge rice pulses beans things like that huge market in india and bangladesh um i think it's primarily where like pulses and beans go oh so it, like it even ex- exports food yeah for sure yeah oh, wow. yeah rice exports are, are enormous uh, from Myanmar. considered it was once called i think in the heyday the breadbasket of asia my gosh i just didn't i didn't know that about it at all yeah huge producer it's actually one of um f- uh, there's a critical food problem coming because of like all the interruptions at the moment oh right and i did want to mention that this other massive revenue stream and with the resources there is a certain the military controls the resources and pretty much always have specifically in ethnic areas and it goes to this elite this hyper elite within the military there was a 2015 or 2016 there was a report that came out called the jade report and it was about jade as like one single precious resource in Myanmar. it goes mostly goes to china much of it is like corruptly dominated by the military and by the elite generals it was worth something to the tune of like between 20 and 30 billion dollars a year like enormous um and that goes that's divvied up among the generals themselves so what like what resources are we talking about are we like talking about jade are we talking about like uh other minerals there's lots of i want to say rubies i want to say there's a lot of rubies yep that's right pretty much I'd have to have a look around, but all between the, uh, the mountains and the sea, like Australia, speaking for Australia, we had interests in natural gas uh, drilling. It was offshore, um, but there's oil there as well. And yeah, uh, gems and jade are enormous in Myanmar. Many, many, uh, much of the world's gems and jade. I think China uh, absorbs most of it, 
but yeah, huge deposits. Um, which is interesting. So like, and the uh, military, the government has a monopoly on the gem trade, it sounds like, but then that money doesn't find its way back to the people. Because like, cause there are other countries where that model works really well, or at least like fairly well, where you have a national monopoly, like the Botswana government um, controls a lot of the diamond mines in Botswana, but it's not like it has a democracy and it's uh, like it spreads that wealth around a lot more. Yeah, I'd say if you're interested, uh, I would look up the Jade Report. It was a really good look into um, just how corrupt it is and how much money is like a sieve that just falls through the economy straight into the hands of the, the junta. And you talk about opening up and why have a democratic project at all. One of the major reasons, when talking to people in Myanmar, no one, again, the the logic of the military and a men online is like, no one really knows. It's sometimes they make really bizarre decisions and you can't really figure out why. They have their own logic. But people would always say that it was the, the young Gen X and the millennial crony kids of all these generals, they wanted to become, they have all this money sitting around. They, they have billions of dollars, but they can't spend it. They couldn't leave the country. They were always sanctioned. They were pariahs um, among the world elite and specifically in Asia. And, they, and the younger uh, family members wanted that. So the benefit is also they have all this money. They had nowhere to put it, nowhere to spend it. So also when you think about like opening up and putting themselves at risk, putting their ideological project at that kind of risk, it was hugely important to them that they would like no longer be a pariah nation just so they could like share their wealth around. Um, what's the role of foreign investment? How much, like once it started opening up, did they get a lot more foreign investment in the company, in the country? Yeah, foreign direct investment. They have what they call special economic zones. And basically what they do around the country, they find points which are going to be good for logistics. There's a bunch uh, in, in and around Yangon, for example. They just take an area of land, uh, concrete it, and make it ready for like manufacturing and factory work. Uh, and they, they were having difficulties attracting foreign investment for reasons like they couldn't guarantee 24-hour electricity supply. And then the logistics were sometimes like, you know, uh, difficult or not up to scratch in the in the supply chain like sense. Um, but that's where a lot of it went. And that was manufacturing. And one of the things I mentioned in this recent article and which like really blew me away was you could watch in real time the formation of an urban proletariat <clears throat> like workers in ghettos just springing up outside the city because they were all following that the foreign direct investment a lot of it east asian went directly into manufacturing uh and then these 10 cities in um lang just sprung up and thousands of young people were leaving their jobs in the country to come to the city to get manufacturing work uh, but a lot of to you to answer your question there is uh foreign direct investment in resources of course um which I think the EU and Western governments tend to be interested in, and then Asian and East Asian foreign direct investment tends to go towards manufacturing. Yeah, I was reading that um, because of that opening up, and like you were saying, the, the, in those economic zones, a lot of it was gar garment manufacturing. I was, I was reading it was 83% uh, of the workforce is now engaged in that low-wage, informal, precarious employment. Um, and if in the garment industry, it's mostly... It's female dominated and that's where you've sort of seen a lot of those 
waves of strikes that have been happening over the last few years come through and then shift to try to like redirect class anger um, towards that ethnic nationalism side of things. Yeah, the NLD, once it got in, it began like kind of stepping on people's toes. And one of the reasons is that when the NLD got in, and that was like Aung San Suu Kyi fulfilling her destiny to become the leader of Myanmar, they stopped taking as much advice from like civil service, civil society groups, and also unions. So in the years leading up to, or since the uh, the NLD got in in 2015, the garment factory kept getting bigger and bigger and they were having union issues. Uh, and the NLD was like mildly supportive, but not really um, of the whole union movement, which was naturally springing up because of the conditions. That's fascinating. And I've, I've read a little bit about, um, about the, the role that the union movements have been playing in this, in this latest wave after the military's tried to retake control. Actually, what, what's, what's happened with the military retaking control? I realize we haven't even got into that. Oh, um, it's, it's very, it's odd. It's like, I still know people who are living there, like some Myanmar. My foreign friends stayed, I had foreign friends who stayed for a bit, but ultimately decided they needed to leave because the situation was kind of deteriorating. But it's, it's weird. It's kind of like, in Yangon at least, it's like the eye of the storm. It's kind of calm and everything feels pretty much the same, but it's, it's very tense. Um, it's slowly unraveling. Part of the way... There are people who are perhaps too old or just don't want to be out in the streets, like directly confronting the police and the military. Um, a lot of people have stopped paying tax and they've stopped paying their electricity bills um, because they, for, for the reason that they say that they don't recognize the legitimacy of the military government. So that's happening, um, which is great. There was the civil service walkouts, uh, like many, many people have just re- refused to go to work. Teachers refuse to teach. Um, they're having difficulty the military can't really, you know, force um, that many people to go to work. Um, so it's really like everything's just slowly grinding to a halt. But it is a process and like it is ticking along. As I said, um, agricultural sector is in real trouble because of like the, the interruptions to the to the flow of trade and things like that. So we could be seeing like food security issues and we could be seeing like, and this, this again has a knock-on effect because if Myanmar produces an enormous amount of agricultural goods, which places like Bangladesh and India are going to buy and trade in. This could have a bad knock-on effect um, if, if like, this season, or, or seasons to come, um, it's still in flux, and then it, all this rice is just going to rot in the field. I get the feeling as well that, um, sort of jumping back a little bit to the economy question, that, you know, once, if, depending on what direction the current state of things go, there's a lot of... Um, interesting players eyeing off Myanmar in terms of from a high-tech perspective um when you when you read there's a bunch of articles um from you know weird think tanks and groups like uh we mentioned it before like Fandi Fandi yeah um there's another one like called DevX um all these like weird high-tech uh you know Palo Alto tech companies eyeing off Myanmar as a sort of, and they call it like a blank slate because the way they say it never went through the traditional um, telecommunications, um, I guess, uh, you know, 
infrastructure phone they sort of skipped it and went straight to mobile and they're looking at the country it's like oh it's like a an interesting frontier where you can use it as a blank slate for new technologies and it's interesting in who's eyeing it off yeah a hundred percent um it, it is very strange you know it's like the whole you know um, unmechanized farming and people who don't have access to healthcare or education but they do have a smartphone <laughs> like it's it's odd i remember it was always really funny to me you, you would it was not uncommon to see like older people maybe in their 60s walking around listening to like Katy Perry and listening to like K-pop and all this all this bizarre it was bizarre but but yeah it was like going from nothing to having everything at once and the internet they really raced to get internet connectivity across the country before they could even connect the country with electricity a lot of places were getting the internet like before that um, I think in Chin and in other like very more remote areas but it was huge and the second part is do you remember when facebook got into a lot of trouble because they were accused of not doing enough um policing the platform to stop uh rohingya hate and anti-islamic sentiment from spreading across facebook and they it's definitely true they weren't doing enough they weren't really interested <clears throat> um it's very opaque like i tried to find out um, they do have, Facebook did have a Myanmar team, but I never got close to finding out like who they were, how many there were, but I, it was my understanding there weren't very many people, considering the fact that in Myanmar, Facebook is ubiquitous with the internet. In Myanmar, if you have the internet, it means that you have Facebook. Yeah, I was reading that, like Facebook, it, it's, it's the main way that people communicate. And, and not only that, but I was reading that it's also like the main platform used by um, resistance groups to organize and and also like state um, aligned groups to organize as well it's all based off the Facebook platform which is sort of odd because a lot of the rest of the world has sort of moved away from that yeah yeah exactly um, you're right and even even businesses like conduct most of their uh, most of their business over Facebook I guess I guess to a lot of people, it just feels like it's the platform that does everything at once. What well, do you reckon those big companies like um, like the eBay founder who's you know getting the get up guided to do something whatever in um, in Myanmar are like hoping the country to to be like what what do you reckon the social program that they'd like to enforce are and like can you see any like social bases that would that could like push their interests in that way? I'm very I'm very cynical. Uh, about that there were of course like different companies were um, basically like doing a bit of NGO work and like spending money out in the community to improve uh, a lot of the areas of the worst poverty but there was also other stuff you talk about burgeoning tech I'm not going to say the name of that organization but there was like ostensibly it was an NGO ostensibly in Myanmar to get people out of dire poverty but what they would do was they were interested in microloans uh, and microfinance and I have a very grim view of microfinance like I honestly think rather than again like uh, most farming in Myanmar totally unmechanized these people have no access to medicine they have very little access to education and going out there uh, and giving people the some of the poorest farmers in the world loans and even if it has a tiny interest rate on it you're still making them pay you interest so that was one, but they also did good work. Like, uh, here, here's another strange thing that happened when the country opened. China started to import, uh, it, it was Chinese made. They started to import 
uh, pesticide. So all this pesticide came in. Many of my farmers had no idea how to use it. And they were, farmers were dying. They were poisoning themselves. They would do things like, I heard this from a friend who worked for this NGO. They would do things like stir a 44-gallon drum full of pesticide using their arms. Yeah, so it was, this organization went out there because they wanted to stop that. And they were teaching them how, how farmers basically how to use modern farming tools. But at the same time, there were things going on like microfinance, which they always pushed as being this humanitarian good. Uh, I would strongly push against that. Idea. Yeah, well, so the guy who um, the guy who set up our our get up funder in um, our get up founder, sorry, in in Myanmar is he's he's deep into microfinance. Um, so he he's he said that um, and I'll just read directly from this article um, on Pando about him. So um, Omnit. Omidya is a free market libertarian loon who told Nobel Prize winner Muhammad Yunus he refused to donate to the poor unless he could personally profit off it. A few years later, hundreds of poor rural Indians committed suicide to avoid debt collectors working for one of his for-profit microfinance lenders. So it looks like maybe that there is a little bit of interest in, um, like, from this kind of international tech capitalist from doing that, that in Myanmar as well. That's probably bad news. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. And it also, like, of course, you talk about capitalization in Myanmar and um, growing the market. There was, like, a serious burgeoning, what do you call it, like, office tech, um, basically bureaucracy, like a uh, proto-corporate bureaucracy. And office work was a new idea, but it's something that young people got the university education and would become, like, office workers. It was relatively new and novel. But when you talk about things like microfinance, the other thing it does talk about expanding the economy uh especially microfinance like creating a team to do it feels like just creating a middleman like one of its purposes is you are you are creating jobs but it only exists to service like microfinance and it isn't it how telling is it that like a someone a capitalist libertarian you know like a millionaire billionaire would be so honest and that is like when you talk about microfinance, it's like, yeah, the interest is very little, but if you can get it out to 55 million people, you're going to make an absolute mint. So while all this is going on, are the ethnic army still kicking about as well? Like, it seems like there's just so many different things happening in Myanmar, right? You've got the, like, proletarianization, which seems to have opened up these, like, new forms of, like, unions and strikes and resistance. You've got this, like, still deeply fucking weird military junta. Um doing their, like, weird post-colonial um, psy-up dictatorship shit. Um, you've just got the insanely predatory institutions of, like, global development and, like, libertarian microfinance and, like, the uh, tech creeps coming in. Uh, you've presumably got China doing stuff. I assume they're doing something. And then you've got, like, sounds like everything's happening. Um, yeah, I like the... the and you still got these, like, ethnic armies in, like, the hills or whatever, and presumably also, like, just the world's largest heroin trade as well. Like, what are those guys up to? Uh, so, yeah, you make, a, you make a good point. Everything... <laughs> in that country, everything's going on at once. Um, so to the ethnic armies, it's... So the young, like, the people fighting in the streets in Yangon are, like, young Burmese people, and there's been, like, a really big, noticeable change in ethnic solidarity... And even the NUG, the Underground Democratic Government, which has some teething issues, I'm not... I don't know, I'd need to learn a lot more about them um, before I come to 
like an opinion about them. But they do have the support of young people and a lot of people in Myanmar as the next legitimate democratic government. Um, oh, so yeah, the ethnic armies. Yes, the NUG brought through a motion that said they were going to create a plan to rehabilitate, to repatriate Rohingya um, back to northern Rakhine and give them a path to citizenship, which would give them their legal rights. Uh, which is great to see, and I didn't, I didn't expect to see a change that fast. But there's an enormous change in solidarity among people fighting. But these are young Bamar people, uh, as I said, who, who ostensibly are at the apex, but have been as as squashed by the military, um, basically as anyone else. There is enormous solidarity with the ethnic armed groups, and there are people who live in the, the Burmese people who live in the cities are known. It's being reported that they're going out to get weapons training and bomb training and things like that to bring those tactics into the metropole. But some of the ethnic armed groups, basically, like, the wars have been going for so long that they have, like, a cyclical pattern to them. And at different times, ethnic groups will be fighting, and then they'll go into a ceasefire agreement and then come back out of it again. And I don't know how much they synchronize it with each other, but it all, it like, all bounces what the Tatmador is doing in their campaigns and what the ethnic armies are going to do, it kind of all bounces off each other. And nothing really changed. Like, no one is really winning these wars. You could argue that, cynically, that especially for the military, fighting them is the purpose, not winning them. Um, so, sorry, I'll get to the point. So, basically, like, people are talking about a new front uh, against the Tatmador, which, with all the armed ethnic forces coming together to help form this new nation and having the support of the metropole, like the Burmese people, uh, to fight for democracy. But it's very tricky and very complicated. The ethnic armed organizations, they have their own goals um, and have mostly been on the defensive. Like they're interested in their homelands. They're protecting their homelands from the military. So, and it will be a change beyond the logistics and beyond the cyclical nature of coming in and out of campaigning uh, because again, like logistically, it's difficult to compete with the Tatmadaw. They're very well armed. They have they're stacked with veterans for that reason because they're always at war. Um, they just have far more money and resources. So the ethnic armed groups kind of tag in and out um, of when they're campaigning against the military. So at this point, I don't know. It would be very difficult, I think, like to possible and people moving towards it. But it's going to be take a lot of effort to get anything like coherent at that level. How do you think it's going to go, like, over the next couple of decades? You know, what... Like, like optimistically and cynically and, and you know, uh, what do you think is in the future for Burmese people? I don't know. It's... Yeah, it seems like there's a, there's a lot too much going on to um, be able to make any sort of prediction with any hope of it coming true. I mean, that's that's true even in relatively, like, simple kind of circumstances. But I guess it involves... What involve so many kind of geopolitical things and and so many different, like, internally, like, armed groups, it's it's almost impossible to, to meaningfully kind of think about what the future might hold. But I think it is important for us um, here, in, you know, even just leftists here in Australia to think about it from an internationalist perspective, um, you know, wherever sort of this sort of resistance is kicking up. It's still good to, I think, maintain our knowledge of what's going on. And I'm sort of grateful for Alec uh, coming on today because, you know, Myanmar is one of those places where I really don't have a lot of knowledge about, even though there's some really interesting um, stuff going on there. Yeah, so 
like talking about where it's going to go from here. It's so funny because you said like, you know, it feels like something's got to give because there's so much happening at once. It's really crazy at all these different layers. But the kind of the funny and the sad thing is, is that it's not that much more complicated than it was before. It's always had like 12 different things going on at once. And now maybe there's 15 things going on. I think realistically, the military is incredibly powerful. Um, less socially, but just in terms of like, they, they literally just dominate the space. They're highly coherent. They've got ideological discipline. There's not much a coup within the military itself. Seems very unlikely. It seems unlikely that any elements within the military, you wouldn't have like a, uh, what do you call like, um, like in Portugal, like a military officers revolt or stuff like that. It's likely to grind on this way, like for quite, for quite a long time. And it will return to something like something probably what it looked like in the two thousands. Cause ASEAN has to do with Myanmar. Um, these countries that trade with Myanmar have to deal with them. They're not going anywhere. So unfortunately, I think it looks like the democratic movement is going underground once again. Um, and I was when I was writing that piece, the Greens magazine, I thought that sounds really glib. I don't feel like I have anything like really positive to say about it. But if there is something positive about it, it's that Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy represented like a whole era of democratic politics. And that was the 70s and the 80s. And it had really pretty bad foundational problems at the core of it. And there were many reasons that it didn't function as it was intended to. Um, yeah, internally dysfunctional and, and racist, as it turns out. But this generation had made a clean break. And there are, there are still millions of people who love Aung San Suu Kyi. She's still considered to be a national hero. But I, politically speaking, it's a spent force. Um, and I think we're going to see, like, uh, Myanmar millennials form a new way of dealing with the military and a new way of, like, working towards a democratic project. That's super exciting. That is really exciting. It's really, it's always exciting when um, people try something new and it looks like that they might be able to figure out something that works. Thanks so much for coming on, Alec. I've enjoyed this so much. It's been really fascinating. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you guys. Um, if anyone wants to see your work, I mean, I know I follow you on Twitter, um, but where else can we kind of come in contact with your stuff? I'll make sure I put this, um, your, your article for the Greens in the show notes, but... Where else can we kind of come in contact with what you're up to? Oh, thank you. As I said, like, uh, as a journalist, I've almost pretty much been working as an editor. So I don't have a whole lot of stuff out there or stuff that's recent, I should say. Um, anything that pops up, it's usually just on the Twitter feed. I am working. I did purchase a blog space, but I've been like working on other projects. But yeah, that'll all just come through the Twitter feed. It's the easiest place to find me. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll um, put your Twitter in the show notes as well. You're Alec, is it Alec Wilmot? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes, and I'll I'll link to your um. Your, I enjoyed your review of um, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah as well. Ah, oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, thank you, Alec. That ruled. I feel like I learned a lot about Myanmar. No, that was awesome. Thank you so much, guys, for the opportunity. It's my first. I've never been on a podcast before. It's my first time. Oh, first time for everyone. Um, it's yeah, it's worth doing. I mean, now you're also amongst the lowest humans on earth. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks, guys. See you in the next one.